Good morning. It's 830 on Friday, October 14th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as rural hospitals discontinue critical services, the state health officer assesses the availability of health care in Mississippi. Then a southern town celebrates the legacy of a Supreme Court justice with roots in the KKK, who became a champion for civil rights. Plus, a public school group wins a lawsuit shutting down a legislative grant program. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Rural hospitals in Mississippi, especially those in the Delta, are struggling. In July, a Greenville hospital closed its neonatal intensive care unit. And most recently, Greenwood LaFleur ended its labor and delivery services. These closures are raising questions about the state of health care in underserved communities. State Health Officer Dr. Dan Edney says challenges that existed before COVID were made worse by the pandemic. Pandemic. What we have watched over the last year is that really the healthcare infrastructure uh, in the Mississippi Delta has become increasingly more fragile. Uh, COVID put a great strain on our hospitals across the state, and many of the hospitals in the Delta were already having to deal with unique socioeconomic issues, and uh, with COVID putting even more strain on staffing and finances, uh, we are seeing an increasing number of hospitals that are moving into a danger zone of their ability to to operate and, and sustain operations. Edney characterizes the work done by Delta Hospitals as heroic before, during, and coming out of the pandemic. But he worries the dominoes may begin to fall if nothing is done to help rural hospitals. When you have hospitals in the Delta who have a low number of patients now because they just can't provide the full-level services that they did 15 years ago, and many of those few patients they have are uninsured, it just it complicates the the problem for them. And I and I, I want to point out that these these hospitals have been performing heroic work in the Delta for a long time. I'm a Delta boy. I grew up in Greenville. Uh, my first stint in medicine was as a volunteer worker at, at Delta Regional back when I was in high school. So I know the area well and I, I love the area. Those hospitals have been working just incredibly hard, especially through the pandemic, just overwhelmed at times and still, you know, never giving up. And so uh, they're really in a situation now that's just a multitude of factors. And uh, many of the factors are no fault of their own. And so we as a society are just gonna have to decide what are we gonna do with our rural hospitals? And there, uh, some feel that let the, let the market sort it out uh, from a public health standpoint. I know that we have hospitals that are strategically important, that are worthy of support. Um, and, you know, somehow we've got to sort this problem out. So what what I have to do on the public health side is to try to intervene as much as I can from the 
perinatal perspective and the infant mortality perspective to try to give mothers the safety net that we can as the agency and then try to, to rally the troops to understand that we, we have a healthcare crisis in the state and you know we have to choose to do something about it. Um, the health department can't fix it. The best thing I can do is what I'm doing today is to talk to y'all and just help people understand that dominoes are, will be falling very soon unless we do something to help these hospitals. And it's above my pay grade to say what that is. Um, but there are a lot of smart, thoughtful people who care about this, that we don't have a lot of time to, to wait. You know, we need to decide what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and do it together as a community of Mississippians, in my opinion. Any less financial issues, population decline, and COVID-related fallout as reasons Mississippi may see more closures. Still, he says some things should not be left for the market to decide, and the Delta is worthy of help from the state. And the Mississippi Delta, the biggest factor is just the, the economics of things. Um, population has moved out, so the population is much smaller. Uh, so do we need as many hospitals in the Delta? You know, that probably not. But, you know, when you allow the market to decide who closes, you may have three of them closing all in one area. And and then you have a healthcare desert in the middle of the Mississippi desert worse than uh, Mississippi Delta worse than it already is. So population dwindling, um, the level the the level of insured patients which hospitals have always depended on to, to stay afloat is dwindling in the, in the Delta. Um, and, you know, the, the burden on the hospitals of providing good care to the, the uninsured, especially low-income workers like my mother and father were, uh, low-income workers, Mississippi Delta, you know, the, that's putting more of a burden on the hospitals Uh, A lot of the payments that used to make up the difference have gone away. uh, Medicare reimbursement to hospitals were reduced uh, to help fund the Affordable Care Act. The disproportionate share uh, funding for hospitals like in the Mississippi Delta was reduced to fund the Affordable Care Act. And as you all know, the Affordable Care Act dollars aren't coming into the state outside the marketplace plans. So that's kind of a double, double whammy for for many hospitals and clinics around the state is they've got lower reimbursement without, you know, another funding source to make up the difference. So the Delta is this unique thing. We've all known this. Um, if you've been in Mississippi any amount of time, but it doesn't mean we ignore it or that we give up or that we can't, you know, meet the challenge as a community. And, you know, and I think the, the Delta is worthy of, intervening. I think the Delta is worthy of investment. I think the Delta is worthy of our help. Edney believes hospitals act as economic drivers for communities. Mississippi is led by a governor who champions business investment in the state. But as Edney points out, investing in regions like the Delta become more difficult when the healthcare infrastructure is fragile. When business is looking to locate into a new area, they ask the same questions. They ask, they need to know what's the infrastructure in terms of transportation and water. They're interested in the ed- educational system and they're interested in the healthcare system. And 
And when they're looking at one county versus another county or one state versus another state, these are the things they look at. And when, when parts of that are unhealthy, they, they tend to look elsewhere. So if we, if we have any hope of building economic development in the, in the Delta, we have to keep a, a, a healthy healthcare infrastructure in place. So in terms of how many hospitals that needs to be, that's actually going to be part of the state health plan um, that we are beginning to rework at the agency, which I, th- I think will bring some of that information forward. I don't know the answer today what that number is, but I think by the time we generate the new health plan, uh, it will. We'll have a much better idea. Um, but, you know, these these local economies are very dependent on these hospitals. Dr. Dan Edney is the state health officer of Mississippi. The Department of Health is currently implementing the Healthy Moms, Healthy Babies program, which sends nurses to the homes of mothers on Medicaid. Edney hopes this meets some of the needs that were met by the closure of the neonatal intensive care unit. Coming up, a southern town celebrates the legacy of a Supreme Court justice with roots in the KKK, who became a champion for civil rights. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. In Ashland, Alabama this weekend, a former Supreme Court justice will be honored near his hometown. Justice Hugo Black has a complicated history. He was a former member of the KKK who later fought for racial equity and was a champion for free speech. From the Gulf States newsroom, Taylor Washington sat down with Black's biographer, Steve Suits, to talk about the judge's legacy. And so since you literally wrote the book on Hugo Black, would you just mind telling us briefly about who he was? Justice Black was um, a member of the United States Supreme Court for 34 years. Uh, Before that, he uh, grew up in Alabama, in Clay County, and uh, went to the University of Alabama Law School. And uh, in 1908, moved to Birmingham, where he became a... uh, a plaintiff's lawyer representing uh, poor uh, African-American and white workers uh, who were in mines or in the industries of Birmingham. And then in 1926, he ran for the United States Senate and was elected by the, uh, the, the people of Alabama. Actually, at that time, only the white people of Alabama because the disfranchisement was still uh, the rule. And so, uh, and he served in the United States Senate for uh, almost two terms before Franklin Delano Roosevelt appointed him to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes. So while Black was a member of the KKK for a brief time, he later became known for supporting civil rights. 
Would you mind talking about how his past may have played a role in his future decisions on the court? Well, I think uh, Hugo Black actually developed his sense of, of racial justice uh, from his uh, years at, uh, in Alabama. He was the, early on uh, the court's most uh, vocal uh, advocate for uh, ensuring that low-income, poor, white and black defendants were given a fair trial. He was he believed that everybody who was charged with a serious crime had a right to a lawyer, which was not established till the 1960s in an opinion he wrote. He joined and pushed for Brown versus the Board of Education, which outlawed segregation in the public schools and later in all public facilities across the nation. But his notion of racial justice was, was, I think, grown and born almost entirely during his time in Alabama. Yeah, so what role should his past play in how we look at his legacy as a whole? What I hope Alabamians and, and other Southerners come to realize is that this man who, after Brown versus the Board of Education, probably became the most hated white man in the South because he was willing to outlaw segregation. This man did not really change his views once he went off out, out on the other side of the Mason-Dixon line. What he did was he took his uh, Alabama-born notions of equal justice to all, and he carried them with him to the Supreme Court. And it was that general framework that gave us the kind of, of uh, judicial revolution that uh, meant that we now live in what I call a constitutional America, where it doesn't matter what race, what place, what religion you are, the Bill of Rights protects you. And the 14th Amendment guarantees that the government will treat everyone with equal protection. And that was not the case when he was in Alabama. It was not the case when he went to the Washington. But it is the case today in large part because of those Alabama-born values that he took up to the north. So this weekend, he'll be honored with the monument near his hometown in Ashland, Alabama. Why do you think it's taking so long for him to be recognized in this kind of way? Well, I think the reason it's been so long is that he was... Um, seen as a traitor to his own people, to the white people of Alabama and the South. And I think it's taken this long for, uh, for the public and for public opinion to realize that, uh, first of all, uh, segregation was uh, an abomination. It was dead wrong, as he, uh, as he had said. And I think it has been a long time coming, but I'm pleased that I've lived long enough to see it happen. The Gulf States Newsroom is a collaboration among Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public media stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Coming up, a public school group wins a lawsuit shutting down a legislative grant program. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Discover everything MPB Think and MPB Music Radio have to offer with just the sound of your own voice. Ask for the one you want by name. For news, great storytelling, humor, games, and more, say smart speaker, play MPB Think Radio. For musical selections, ranging from a dozen genres from classical to bluegrass, jazz to adult alternative, say smart speaker, play MPB Music Radio. Tuning in is easier than ever. Just ask for the one you want by name. Say smart speaker. 
play MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A public school group is celebrating a legal victory. Parents for Public Schools filed a lawsuit against the state of Mississippi over an infrastructure grant program that set aside $10 million in public funds for private schools. Yesterday, the Hines County Chancery Court ruled the legislature acted in violation of the state constitution when it allocated the money solely for private schools. Attorney Robert McDuff of the Mississippi Center for Justice represents the organization. He tells our Michael Guidry the constitution protects public funds from being used in that manner. In the last legislative session, the legislature appropriated $10 million to be used exclusively for infrastructure grants to private schools in Mississippi. This violates the uh, Section 208 of the Mississippi Constitution, which specifies that no appropriations shall be made of public money to schools that are not free schools. And free schools, this is, it was a terminology that uh, is, is a, equates to public schools, public schools where people do not have to pay money to attend. And this, this provision of the Mississippi Constitution, Section 208, uh, essentially codifies the principle that public money should go to public schools. And because this appropriation by the legislature uh, during the last session directly violates that provision of the Mississippi Constitution, we filed suit in the Chancery Court of Hines County. Uh, but, but what I'm just kind of curious, what is the state's argument uh, when it's clearly public money um, going to grants, not even loans, for private schools? The um, attorney general's argument in court was very technical. Um, their office said that because the money was appropriated to the Mississippi Department of uh, Finance and Administration so it could make grants to private schools, the money wasn't going, quote, to private schools, end quote. And um, so that, that, that argument was a real technicality. Uh, we we pointed out to the judge that the money was going to private schools, even though there was an intermediate step in the Department of uh, Finance and Administration, and that this violated uh, the Constitution just as much as a direct grant uh, would. And the judge agreed with us. Uh, she said that the purpose of the provision was to set aside public money exclusively for public schools and any kind of appropriation that ends up sending money to the private schools through whatever route is a, is a clear violation of that provision. Is there precedent for the legislature to use the Department of Finance as, as an intermediary with, with funding? Um, you know, it's, I don't know specifically about that. I do know that many legislative appropriations uh, go to executive departments, which then distribute the money to the intended beneficiary. So you'll see grants related to education that first go through the Department of Education and then go to whoever is supposed to receive them. Uh, grants for, for health purposes go to the Department of Health and then are distributed to various health care entities that are the intended recipients. 
Uh, and so this is not the, the fact that in this case the money first went to the Department of Finance and Administration is not something particularly unusual. So this case was successful in Hines County Chancery Court. Do you anticipate that it will be challenged uh, and, and that this suit will continue uh, up the judicial ladder? Yeah, we'll see whether the attorney general uh, spends the time taking an appeal of this decision. I think it's a, I think it's a waste of time and money. I think the constitutional provision is clear that public money cannot go to private schools. But we'll see if they if they uh, nevertheless spend the time and money on an appeal. Um, I will say we stressed during the trial of this case and the chancery court judge stressed in her opinion that Mississippi is re- Mississippi public schools really suffer from underfunding. Uh, it has been 23 years since a Mississippi adequate education program formula was put in place. And the budget has come short of that formula in every one of those years except two. Uh, so we are we are in a time of crisis in this state in terms of the funding of, for public schools, which makes it particularly particularly problematic that the legislature is is diverting public money to private schools instead of spending it exclusively on public schools as is required by the Mississippi Constitution. So this case has particular importance at this time given that we're dealing with a dramatically underfunded public school system. Rob McDuff, attorney for the Mississippi Center for Justice, uh, representing Parents for Public Schools. Thank you so much for uh, taking some time to explain all this with us. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.